0: Coming up next on the Passion Struck podcast.
1: But they're arriving now with the high levels of anxieties, depression, sexual violence issues, drinking issues, worried about the world. Not only is it the tough things in the world about democratic change or maybe the global environment or or war or refugees or whatever it might be, but there's a whole set of issues that we might think are positive, like changing technology. You know, robotics, and AI, and understanding genetic modification, and, and, and cyber currencies, and, and all these other issues, they don't know what to do with
0: it. Welcome visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, and growth seekers of all types to the Passion Struck Podcast. Hi, I'm John Miles, a peak performance coach, multi-industry CEO, Navy veteran, and entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide. And each week, I do so by sharing with you an inspirational message and interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you tips, tasks, and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and pursue a passion driven life you have always wanted to have. Now, let's become passion struck. Welcome back. The passion struck podcast and thank you to all of you who come back each and every week to learn how to be better live better and impact the world and if you're new to the show or you want to introduce it to friends and family a great way to do that is through our starter packs these are collections of your favorite episodes which are grouped by topic to give a new listener a unique way to learn about everything that we do here on the show just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And thank you so much. I truly appreciate it when you introduce a new person to the show. Today's episode is an extremely special one for me with Jeff Walker. And if you're not familiar with who Jeff is, he is the former vice chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase, teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School, is vice chairman for the United Nations Secretary General's Envoy, for health, finance and malaria, and is a partner with bridge builders collaborative, a unique investment fund and has served or is serving as chairman of more nonprofit boards than you can count places like Quincy Jones music consortium, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation and new profit. And in today's discussion, we go into both of our unique passion for live music, how he discovered his passion and how that love of music and feeling of being part of an ensemble has transitioned into his success in both the business world and the philanthropic world. How he became one of the earliest proponents of mindfulness in business and how mindfulness has completely altered the way that he approaches his life. The background behind the Bridge Builders Collaborative and how they are investing in companies focused on spirituality, mental health, and consciousness, his work with the University of Virginia's contemplative science center, and what they are doing for youth, his time on the United Nations envoy, and the impact that that has had, not only in other countries, but is now having in the United States as well. The concept of being a social entrepreneur versus a systems entrepreneur, and how being a systems entrepreneur can truly impact social impact on a global scale. Why it is so important to manage your ego. We talk about some new therapies for post traumatic stress disorder. And finally, go into the concept of system mapping. So much incredible content here. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me as your host and guide on your journey to living a no regrets life. Now, let the journey begin. We will be right back to the Passion Struck podcast. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy, and we often discuss mental health on the Passion Struck podcast and dealing with the stigma of seeking it. Is there something interfering with your happiness and preventing you from achieving your goals? For me, depression and anxiety significantly impacted my life until I took charge, got over my embarrassment, and sought out help. And luckily... There's a platform now that makes it so much easier to take that step and get therapy. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. I highly recommend that everyone turn to BetterHelp to get started and find a therapist who helps you look at things in a different way like they did for me. Their service is customized, accessible, and affordable, and you can be matched with a therapist in just 48 hours. And to that end, BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life and is offering PassionStruck listeners 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com PassionStruck. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com PassionStruck and join over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. And I realize all those codes and URLs can be difficult to remember. So we'll put them in the show notes for the episode. Please consider supporting those who support this show, make it possible and free for our listeners. Now back to Passion Struck. Jeff, welcome to the Passion Struck podcast. Thank you. Well, I always love having guests on the show, but there are guests who are on my bucket list if I could get them mean um, an incredible amount to the show. And you are absolutely one of those people because I think so much that you're doing, not only when you were in the business world, but now that you're doing around philanthropy means so much to what we are trying to convey here on this podcast. So thank you very much for coming.
1: Really be fun to have a conversation with you.
0: Okay. Well, I thought a great starting point, would be you and I both have a huge love for live music. And I started that love um, by early in my life um, playing trumpet. And I wanted to hear your journey into how you got involved with music um, and what instruments you play.
1: Yeah, and uh, I was one of those kids where I wasn't really the athlete. I was always kind of that, you know, nerd that was... Really into science and math, et etc., and didn't find my place until around seventh grade. And I walked into the band room and uh, said, "Maybe I want to play an instrument." Guy looked at me, and I was tall, and uh, I had braces, and he kind of said, "Sousaphone tuba," because it had a big mouthpiece. And I said, "All right, well, let's try that." And uh, I get to start learning how to play, and and uh, I got so much in love with what the feeling was of playing with others. And so I got involved in the orchestra, the wind ensemble, the marching band, jazz ensemble, whatever, because that feeling of playing with others got me that feeling of community and reinforced that I'm part of this larger group and team that created a sound that I couldn't do by myself. And so that from seventh grade till the end of high school, was something that allowed me to have my creative spark, but also find my, my group, my connection. And from there, that feeling, I kept looking for it. And that's my mind as a partnership that I continue to want to help support or find people to connect with. That's not just around music, but it's around all things I work on. But the love of music stayed with me. So in my private equity career, we, we bought Guitar Center and House of Blues and lots of radio TV. And then in my philanthropic career, I'm on the board of Berkeley College of Music, the largest, mu- largest music school in the world. And one of the things they talk about there in the feeling of a jazz ensemble is individuals playing really well by themselves on their instruments, but when they come together and they have the skills of listening to others playing their instruments, and riffing off of those sounds so that you can create this song that you couldn't have by yourself and that remembering there's an audience. So that impact is important and that connecting to the audience and having them stimulated by the passion that you've got going with others on stage and that you're listening to them as well. So there's a reason you're not just playing for yourself is something that is transformational. It's spiritual. It's a connective feeling. We've all felt like that in live music. You know, is what you've talked about before. When you're sitting there listening, all of a sudden, everybody starts singing together. They start dancing together. They're in the moment. They're connected. And how do we do that and have that same kind of experience when you're working on some of the hard problems that we all look, uh, face uh, going forward? How do we find others to play with to connect? Because I find that that same feeling of live music of playing with somebody else is what I feel every time I work on something that I think is uh, transformational um, going, going forward and that's that passion in my mind that's why I love what you're talking about and where you're going with you find it, it, it when it lights somebody up you, you know it you feel it and so when you can connect people together so that they all light up together that's transformational
0: well I can't agree more and luckily um, we exposed um, our kids to music at a very young age, uh, introducing them both to piano when they were three or four years old, and I think that experience has done so much for them because it's opened up a creative area of their their brain um, that I think needs to be nourished, uh, which is why I think music programs, art programs, creative programs um, in school are so important. But um, it led my son into songwriting and becoming a percussionist and uh, led my 17-year-old daughter into um, wanting to join a band and uh, picking up the bass. So taking that experience of music, how has it helped you to solve problems first during your business career and now during your social service career?
1: Yeah, and uh, in the business world, we had I started a private equity group part of Chemical Bank at the time, um, Chemical Venture Partners in 1983, and then eight mergers later, it became J.P. Morgan Partners, and through all of those, understanding what it means to be a partner. the, The senior team at Chemical Bank, six out of eight of the senior team at J.P. Morgan were the senior team from Chemical Bank. Now, why is that? It's because somehow they were able to do these mergers and connections and understand the value of others and be a preferred merger partner than some of the other, maybe more smart institutions couldn't figure out how to connect with each other. They all believed that they had the right way to do things. So our team seemed to be able to listen, to connect and to bring multiple parties together through those eight different mergers. And in, the group that i set up and i founded the private equity venture group in about 83 84 and uh, uh it was set up as a partnership in a partner forum and so we operated daily trying to connect with each other draw consensus we you know, we didn't do a deal or transactional as everyone agreed and so it was the first partnership in a corporate forum We all had pieces of the deals, uh, gains and losses off of them. And we had Monday meetings where we brought everybody from eventually around the world. We were 12 billion under management and we had offices around the world to talk with each other about, you know, I think that's a good idea, it's a bad idea. And we didn't do transactions unless we could create that consensus, that partnership oriented approach. And to my mind, that listening skills required in that partnership, you know, it was a lot about these young exciting, you know, associates come on board, you know, with hot MBAs, etc And we had to continue to teach them that you already know what you know. You don't know what the other person knows. And so listening is a high skill that collaborating and figuring out ways to team with your different CEOs that you're working with in the portfolio companies that you work with. You want to be an honored partner with them. You don't want to tell them what you do, what, what to do but you wanna partner with them and bring to bear everything you know and connect with what they know to generate a better outcome. And we became a preferred partner because of that. And multiple times we backed the same CEO over multiple deals because of that experience. And so that rolled into the uh, uh, philanthropic strategies that I worked on when I retired in 2007. And when I taught uh, and was executive residence at uh, Harvard Business School and Kennedy School, worked on a lot of those social models. And so how is it that, you know, a business person can add value to something that's important in the world, like curing deaths from malaria and have an impact, but not be seen as that arrogant, jay they think they know everything or business can solve all problems because they cannot. And so how do you build those partnerships with all these different stakeholders to be able to go after those problems? So you can see where it's kind of connected to the entire, you know, scope of my career
0: well so I wanted to take that because I think it goes right into another area of your life that you developed Um, because I think it was when you were at uh, University of Virginia you discovered mindfulness and became one of the first major proponents of it in the business world so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that journey
1: yeah to be a good partner you have to uh, do a lot of your own work work on yourself some little self inquiry and uh, uh I was always a spiritual searcher um and uh I was studying first year at u v a nearest virginia you know um, business and uh, psychology but also very interested in uh, um energy, um, what's going around the human body, caroling photography, um, out-of-body experiences, relaxation models. And uh, one evening I was sitting in the Dell outside uh, uh, under the stars in an area around the University of Virginia and um, started to relax my body and turned into what became my first deep meditation. And that was transformational. It's just something there that just connected. I was more present, I felt more connected and could listen to the, the, the sounds and the wind and the uh, rushing of the uh, grass around me. Um, and so I said, I need more of that. What is that? You know, let's, let's talk about it, let's, let's co- connect. And so I did a lot of more research around it over time. Um, you know, went and uh, figured out that there's a lot of really interesting teachers um, like Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and, and many, many others that have been bringing over a lot of these ideas on mindfulness from uh, India, um, China too. And uh, so what is that? And so I was lucky enough to get exposed to another number of them as teachers and uh, started saying something is going on. I'm, I'm starting to learn other skills that make me better at business and better being a partner. And other people started pointing and saying, what's going on with you? You're different. And so I said, well, I guess it's good, different. Um, But you started noticing the change. And so I became more interested in how do you how do you teach that? How do you connect with others? Because it's not just all about you. It's about you and others. And when you connect with others in a group, in peers, one, you'll meditate more, you'll do yoga more, you'll do body movement, you'll understanding how to listen better with others and so understanding how to do this with others was important to me and so bringing these ideas out to the world and exploring that became one of my passions and so i've been doing that kind of ever since and growing it and whether it's understanding what's been practiced over the last thousands of years and how to add science to it how to actually prove that there's something changing in your brain that there's something called the default default mode network that several of us help fund the research around that goes quiet, that allows you to connect to other areas of your brain, to be more compassionate, to have loving kindness come through, and so this is weird for a guy that was managing partner at J.P. Morgan Partners and that was a vice chairman, and so during right after 9/11, we did meditation. And there's some people in my group that kind of like, well, this is pretty strange, and I'm not sure about this one. And there's other guys that kind of like, well, I really do need that one. But understanding how to manage anxiety, how to understand how to manage depression, your feelings, and then work better with others, whether it's your personal relationship and your family, whether it's relationship with peers and others. These are skills that help you do that. And you may call it flourishing now, well-being, But yes, we started that model and we started creating mindful leadership courses and Harvard Business School. There's authentic leadership now that's taught around it. And it became more and more accepted rather than very strange, um, accepted way to uh, address these problems that we're all experiencing, particularly now during COVID and global, global warming and everything else that's going on in the world. It's adding to that anxiety and those skills around it. So it's something that's continued to be with me And something that's core to what I'm working on and with finding others to work on it with is my partnership strategy to add that science and and embed it into the new world.
0: Well, thank you for that. Um, I have a chapter in my upcoming book that's all about the concept that I call gardener leadership. And one of the most important uh, aspects of being a gardener leader is being what I call ambitious or Um, a leader who's filled with humility. And I think mindfulness and humility really go hand in hand. So reaching the levels that that you have reached, both in the for-profit world and non-profit world, where do you put humility and its importance uh, as a leadership skill?
1: I think understanding that you don't have all the answers is very important. And that there is not one way to do things. When people come in and tell me there is the way to do something, I run away. It's typically one of those uh, um, things that I look for people who have managed egos, who can't, it's hard to get rid of your ego completely, um, but understanding that someone else has something else to offer um, and understanding that. Certain of the jobs we've all been trained for, I can think of tenured faculty, I can think of doctors, you know, I want my doctor to kind of be pretty sure what he's doing before he does it to (laughs) me. But it doesn't mean he has to have, you know, the the worst ego in the world, you know, it means he has to say, I'm really understanding what's going on out there. I want him to listen to others because there's new ideas. And so all doctors need this kind of work. You know, academics, they're really hard to get tenured professors to work together. Um, That's an endemic endemic problem. And so that's what we have been working on um, at UVA and some others is saying, how do we start lowering the walls between these individuals who have their silos? And it's a business problem. And business has been working on this for decades and saying that there are ways to build, break down those walls. And there are new ways to do this in the social change world. So rather than saying, you know, this Western world is going to go in and save those that are poor and those in, in the developing world, you're saying, how do we partner? How do we learn from them who are proximate to, the, to these issues and saying there's interesting solutions there? How do we say that there's, there's a common problem we work on, like ending malaria or cutting, half, cutting in half maternal deaths in New Jersey, which we're working on right now with the governor there, or cutting homelessness down to near zero? which a great group called Community Solutions is working on um, today in in, uh, over 80 cities. So how do we start working on those things together and build collaborations and build others that are coming together for the same problem that may have multiple solutions? And all this requires a humble strategy. All this requires this managed ego approach that allows you to say, I'm here constantly learning, grabbing interesting ideas, partnering with people, Having a vision and a roadmap, from being able being able to change that map on a moment's notice if something better comes along, and people with deep, strong egos have a harder time doing that.
0: Well, I can attest to that through my career, and I I will admit that there were times where I probably had an ego too big for my shoes to fill, Um, but you know, the important thing is realizing when that's occurring and, and adjusting, because you're right. When you aren't listening, you're not being the ultimate leader that you can be. Um, and that's what leadership is all about. Um, so this leadership philosophy, um, this managed ego, is something I saw in your investment criteria at a venture capital firm you're a partner in uh, called the Bridge Builders collaborative i think i have the hope i have the name right yep. um, but but it looks like you you invest in companies around uh, mental health spiritual awareness um etc and i was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that company and how you and your partners founded it
1: yeah uh, bridge builders it was set up over 10 years ago um and uh I got together with a, a friend of mine, Scott Krenz, who is a uh, founded and CEO of Broadcom, uh, and uh, another friend of mine, Austin Hurst, the Hearst family, and we said we liked this area of well-being, of uh, understanding mindfulness and, and its ability to come in and make the world uh, hopefully handle these anxieties more efficiently, effectively. And we like to look at that space and potentially invest in that space. Also do philanthropies. We did both. And so how do we start working together? And we said, hey, let's do that. But let's, let's get someone who could be our collaborative glue that could hold us together. Because it's nice having the intention to work together. But unless we have somebody who can help us unify our thought, our networks, our knowledge, um, it's a weaker collaborative strategy. And so we hired a guy, Charlie Hartwell, uh, to do that. And we created a co-invest group. And so this is not a fund. It's a group of people who like each other and connect with each other, who have deep knowledge and experience in the business world, very successful group. We now have 12 uh, people who do that. And it's on our, it's on the website, you know, bridgebuilders.com. Um, and understanding, I think it's bbcollaborative.com. And understanding that we can invest in this space for a social good that this is something that we thought was important to bring to the world. And we might make some money at it as well. 10 years later, after we helped fund the startup of Headspace and Amplify and Insight Timer and pair, te- pair Technologies and a bunch of others, we've made a significant rate of return. And so you're going. all of a sudden the venture guys started saying, this is a good area. I want to go into this you know, well-being area. I want to go into this mental health area. All of a sudden this is one of the big, you know, funding bills that are coming through Congress right now is to support this understanding and strategy around mental health. And so we fell into, why wow, this, is, this is really working for us and we have more people joining it. And we sit once a month together, mostly virtually, although we do retreats together as a group and love talking to each other. What are you seeing out there in the world? Not just investments. It could be, what's your own practice? What's going on with you? Oh, there's a great retreat that I went on together. And these are, you know, this is Randall Mays. who was CEO of Clear Channel, you know, and the Board of Live Nation. You know, this is, this is Austin, who's, who's, you know, got a publishing, you know. Empire. <laughs> Matt <laughs> yes. Harris, you know, who's, who's, who's one of the big infrastructure investors in the world. These are significant people who are trying to go down this path of self-examination. And I, that's what it gives me heart, is that there are so many people who want to do that who want to find a way to start learning and connecting and finding that thing they can do to lower my goal in life is to lower suffering in the world and enhance joy. That's it. If you can lower suffering and enhance joy and doing a significant way with others, that's
0: another level. Well, that's great information. And one of the areas that I really loved you invested in um, is consciousness because one of the reasons I came up with passion struck, and it it was something that came to me as I was doing mindfulness practice. I I think all of our lives are enriched by the questions that we ask ourselves, and for me, I kept asking myself, "What am I supposed to be doing here on Earth?" And I believe too many people. Are disengaged in their own lives. Meaning, I think people become spontaneously engaged. They go through the actions kind of like a pinball in a pinball machine where they're bouncing off things, but they're not truly consciously engaged in how they're going through the steps of their life and the outcomes that they that they want, that those conscious engagement moments are creating. So I I love that that's an area that you're focused on. Um, another area that I loved um, is that you were you focusing on um, youth in many ways, and I saw um, that you're involved with the University of Virginia Contemplative Science Center, uh, which has a mission for younger students. And um, I also think there's a tie-in to that first mindfulness experience that you had with this entity, so I was hoping you could talk about what they do, but also maybe share the irony of um, your first mindfulness experience and this organization you now work with.
1: Yeah, happy to do it. Um, I love the University of Virginia. I went there undergraduate and uh, was chairman of the board of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, and many other things. The UVA was on the board there. But one of the things I particularly love is over the last twelve years, I've chaired the Contemplative Science Center, and this is the study of mindfulness, meditation, body movement. Social emotional learning models do research around it. How do you apply that? We have programs in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, a 10 year, um, a seven year funded model that took K through um, 12 programs in Louisville, Kentucky, particularly focusing on kindergarten through fifth grade, and over a seven year period showed what an integrated strategy of teaching twice a week for an hour at a time mindfulness, body movement, health, and social emotional learning to kids can do. And the results of that study are coming out in December, but it's very good. And the entire city of Louisville is launching that program to the rest of their schools. And so it's not only K through 12, which is very important. It's also higher ed. and higher ed, the kids are showing up at significant suffering levels. The head of pediatrics at University of Virginia just told me the other day that One out of 13 kids by the age of 21 attempt suicide, which is a ridiculous number. And it's ridiculous. I think, what you and I experienced when we were growing up, I hope. Um, But they're arriving now with the high levels of anxieties, depression, sexual violence, you know, issues, drinking issues, you know, worried about the world. You know, not only is it the tough things in the world about democratic change or, Maybe the global, global uh, the environment or, or war or refugees or whatever it might be, but there's a whole set of issues that we might think are positive, like changing technology, you know, robotics and AI and understanding genetic modification and, and, and cyber currencies and, and all these other issues. They don't know what to do with it. And so literally they've never been taught how to handle that anxiety that comes up when you're Addressing all these uncertainties and what else should I do in life and how do we connect? How do you give them these social emotional learning skills, which are employment skills? This is what businesses actually want is people who can understand themselves, how to understand being a team and working together with others, how to understand how to be open and and to listen and how to actually control your own ability so you can do an ordered approach to life and working better with others. So that's what we do. And that's what the goal is. And we're building a center now called the Contemplative Commons, which um, a great friend of mine, uh, Paul Ture Jones uh, was on our board and his wife Sonia um, helped support. And that's going up in the center of the university. And so it's connecting all the different schools together because these skills are important, not only for academics, but for extracurricular, co-curricular activities, how you living with others in a space. How do we decrease the amount of people going Student health with extreme issues around these problems, so that they can talk with each other as they understand what peers are like. And guess where that building is now being built? It's right on the site that I mentioned to you that I was sitting on the grass doing my first meditation. And I didn't plan that at all. (laughs) Literally, they came in and said, This is where we're going. I said, You gotta be kidding me. (laughs) That's exactly where I started. Um, And so, you know, I love growing that. And what else we have done? Um, that I'm helping support is set up a flourishing academic network, which has 12 major research universities. UVA is one of those, but also Duke and Berkeley and USC and Stanford and Brown and University of Wisconsin and Colorado, who are all sharing knowledge around these strategies to help their students, to help higher ed. And that sharing, boy, is that unusual for multiple universities and schools to work together for those common issues, sharing curriculum and approach. That's a partnership. And it's really fun to be on those calls once a month that we start saying, what are we gonna work on together? How do we share that curriculum? What's working for you? What's working for us? Because we all have that goal of bringing these skills to the higher ed world. So just another example of a a partnership process that's trying to bring these together, that's embedded with these kinds of self-inquiry, Um, well-being skills, flourishing skills.
0: Well, I was going to ask this question a little bit later on, but I think now might be the opportune time. And that is a lot of people who I know who are involved in philanthropy do it in a solo manner. And I think the collaborative approach you just brought up about sharing this information about universities leads me to question, how do you get more philanthropic individuals to become a community, similar to what Bill Gates is trying to do. Seems like what you're trying to do, even the way that you're investing in these companies. But do you have any tips on that?
1: Sure. We've been exploring that for a while and written some pieces on that. My last book, The Generosity Network, is about lowering those walls between donors and doers. And it's understanding that we all have something to offer. And they actually were all afraid to partner with someone else. And so not only is it hard for a social entrepreneur to go to someone and say, can you help me do this? Can you help fund me? But that person on the other side is afraid that they're going to be treated just like money or they're going to be treated you know, as someone who they have to be put up with and reported to as opposed to becoming their partner and that person's afraid of what their spouses are saying or what their other world will say if they make a bad investment. So the strategy that we've come up with um, that seems to work with many others is to build these collaborative partnerships. And I chair also another social change uh, group, a venture philanthropy group called New Profit, and we help start up uh, Teach for America and Teach for All and KIPP schools and a whole bunch of other things over the last 20 years. And we look at these collaborative models and say, how can we take businesses, individuals, foundations, and collaborate on a problem like workforce? How do we train more people and upskill them more effectively and more cost-effectively? And we can do this more, we can do this better if we work together. And we did an X Prize. we brought Walmart, and Marriott and and, uh, Lumina and a variety of others together because they actually wanted to take their employees and give them and upskill them. And if they got jobs in another company, that's a success. So whatever that is, let's have a strategy that everyone wins from and that they can share these strategies across companies, across individuals. At New Profit, our board, we have private equity guys, venture guys, but we all love working with each other, hearing from Wendy Kopp about what she's been doing and teach for all. And so are starting to figure out and set up these philanthropic support groups um, is a winning strategy. We did that in malaria. We've done that in community health. I have a partnership over the last 12 years to bring community health to Africa. And over the last three years back to the United States, it's a set of philanthropists who we just love on Thursdays at 10 o'clock get on Zoom with each other and talk about what we're working on with our team. And we have a small team that we help fund of people that I call catalysts. These are orchestrators. These are people that help unify different parties together for a common cause, like ending deaths from malaria, like cutting in half maternal uh, deaths in New Jersey um, and others. And when you do that, people want to be around it. You start understanding the marketplace better. You start understanding the influencers that could affect your problem more effectively. You're not trying, you you have solutions and innovations that come to bear, but you're not backing any one particular solution. You're allowing those multiple solutions to come together to figure out what really works in a local local city, uh, local state, whatever that might make it. So you're not telling them what they have to do. You're making these resources available to you. And that's actually my last article in Stanford Social Innovation Review, is all around locally driven and network-supported organizations, people that are those network supporters that help share that knowledge to local actors who really understand what it takes to change in their locale. And that's what's happened with Community Solutions, where they've driven homelessness down to near zero in 14 cities, where they've built partnerships with the governments, with the local businesses, local foundations, and others. One, it's much more effective than the single solution where a philanthropist will go and say, "I have the answer." It just hasn't worked, and it's also not the single NGO nonprofit that you're going to back. And I'll give you all my money, and then you'll just grow. KIPP schools is wonderful, great organization, but it has 250 schools. There's 100,000 schools in America. How do you take those ideas from KIPP and bring them out to the world? And that's what a network support opportunity uh, is so yes philanthropy is changing it's learning from its its, itself hopefully it's finding others who can be passionate about a common problem you can work with Uh, there's lots of good examples of those and it's how to breed more people who are these orchestrators catalysts who help unify the action um, and unify that that approach to solving that common problem
0: I think this is a good segue into. I happened to see um, recently you spoke at an event uh, down in Miami and you brought up the conference at the conference, the difference between being a social entrepreneur and being a system entrepreneur. And I actually thought um, when I heard this concept, the light bulbs went off, including what you just talked about, because Um, I love this concept of acting locally, but getting funded globally or impacting globally. I think it is a a, a great way, um, to think about operating where you can start having world impact, but doing it at a local level. So can you explain, um, for the audience, what you mean by social entrepreneur to system entrepreneur? Sure.
1: Um, there's a woman, a professor at Kennedy School at Harvard, um, Julie Battilana, who wrote a nice piece in uh, Stanford Social Innovation Review, um, which said to have systematic change, you need three different types of groups or, or parties. One are innovators, and we have a lot of those. Those are great NGOs and nonprofits that are out there creating these new ideas. You need disruptors or, organi- or, or um, um, organizers who are able to bring together um, people who want to change the system and so throw a little sand into the system so that the system says, I got to change. And then you need these orchestrators, these system entrepreneurs that actually can look at things and say, how do I do a market map as to who cares about the same problem? What influencers are out there? What, how do I measure change? How do I set a roadmap up to do that and unify all these different actors to come together? So we, in, in schools and and philanthropists have been funding a lot of social entrepreneurs doing that kind of work, like creating Teach for America and KIPP schools, and those are awesome. There is a set of people who are these disruptors and and, uh, organizers, which are awesome, but there's fewer of these catalysts, these orchestrators, these individuals who are trained to be managed ego, to understand how to bring together people. And so Ellen Agler at the End Fund has been over the last uh, 15 years pulling together all the different stakeholders to end five neglected diseases across Africa. And she's been hugely effective by setting up, you know, country-focused activities. She's unified the Gates Foundation and the Global Fund and local foundations and others, but also found, you know, in each of the locales, those local philanthropists, those local government leaders that can do the work. And very effective. She is a model, and I can show you in slavery. There is Nick Rono, who's been that catalyst, and that orchestrator. You know, we can show you the individuals who I would point to and say, we need more of them. And so, can we go back to our programs, whether MBA programs, master's of public policy programs, or just in general, and say, you know, that's a valuable skill. You know, we don't need everyone to be, you know, an orchestrator or catalyst, but You know, if I were a philanthropist and focused on a particular problem, one of the first things I would do is try to find some individuals like an Ellen Agler who can be that catalyst, who can help us understand all the different opportunities that we have to leverage our resources in our network, rather than me trying to figure out by myself, you know, which NGO I'm going to put money into and hope that that has the impact.
0: I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember. So we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now back to Passionstruck, We want to have. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, perspective um, and a completely different way to look at this. And I know when you left your civilian career, you got involved with the UN and became the vice chairman of their envoy that was dealing with things such as malaria um, how did that come about, and was it something you sought out, or did they seek you out?
1: So there's one of my uh, gurus who's actually uh, uh, very much into mindfulness and meditation, Ray Chambers. Um, he retired at 46 after inventing leverage buyouts. Um, he became an amazing philanthropist, and he and I uh, worked on a project uh, called Millennium Promise, which focused on um, development in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and villages. And during one of those tours, Ray, um, I was lucky to be with Ray, and we went through a World Food, Food Program camp in Malawi and saw um, these little babies. And Ray said, gee, you know, they're sleeping. You know, isn't that nice? And the person said, no, they're in malaria comas. And uh, we came back through later that day and uh, asked, you know, where are they? And they said, uh, they died. And so at that moment, um, Rain, in particular became committed to um, figuring out how to bring solutions to uh, the malaria question and problem. And in half of the deaths came from kids that were zero to five years old. So over a 10 year period, um, he through a guy named Jeff Sachs connected up into the secretary general of the UN and set up a unit there that focused on uh, these collaborative catalyst models, uh, orchestrated models around malaria, uh, created Malaria No More, which is a, an awareness uh, program that created awareness in the United States of malaria, and deaths from it from 20% awareness back to uh, almost 70% over a two-year period, funding came, we did return on investment models around bed nets and using bed nets to prevent mosquitoes from getting kids uh, and others uh, at night and dusk and, uh, and dawn, very effective. Uh, strategy so deaths and malaria have come down by a million a year uh, over that last ten year period, which was uh, um, rewarding. And Ray took the lead there. I also specialized um, there in the community health side, and so I became vice chairman with Ray on community health and worked uh, deeply in Africa, helping unify these catalytic strategies to bring together um, different government governments give um, training and leadership training to ministries of health as well as finance, look at financing models there, look at return on investment. So it's applying all the skills that we've had and all my partners, Ingo Saul and Austin Hurst and, and uh, Last Mile Health and a whole bunch of others in USAID to kind of go after that common problem about how do we have someone who cares for you? And so each person on the world, in my opinion, ought to have somebody who cares for them. And so community workers and community healthcare workers are those that are living in the villages themselves. And now we've been applying this over the last three years back to the United States. And our group, our group um, which is called CHAP now, Community Health Acceleration Partnership, is bringing those skills and tools um, to the U.S., figuring out ways to unify business strategies, whether it's Walmart, CVS, and Walgreens, whether it's the public health administrations, whether it's primary care, how do we just create individuals you know, who are supported, who care for you? It might be your mothers, your brothers, might be your doctors, your nurses. How do we have somebody in your community that always is aware and you can connect to that make you healthy? And so that's community health. And that's how it started with the UN. And that's how it grew because of our partnership and our connections with others to uh, hear, come here and affect the us.
0: Well, that's a great story, and we absolutely need it in the United States um, in our healthcare system more, more today than ever. Um, so, I applaud you for that effort. Um, this whole concept of what you're doing um, rings to this concept that I read about you bringing bringing up, and it was the concept of system mapping. Um, map out who cares about a particular problem what partners you need, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I think you just gave a great example of it when you described your work with the UN.
1: Yeah, on, on, you know, it's, it's tough to look at <clears throat> global warming and decide what you can do. And so you know, the Pew Foundation looked out and said, how do we build with these philanthropists that we know who are interested in Um, global climate change and particularly interested in the oceans what we can do and so they set up a collaborative after they understood that what are the levers of change we need how do I map who cares about those oceans and what can we do that's potentially most effective what they decided to do is prevent trawler fishing in millions and millions of square miles of the oceans and when we do that the fish come back and over the last 15 years, they have, with the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and over 50 countries, changed laws. And because they stepped back and they said, who cared about the same problem? And they found philanthropists that did. They found that there's local leaders in each of these countries who are fishing, local fishermen, who were being devastated in their employment because these trawlers were coming in and taking their fish from them. natural partners so they lobbied each of their governments to say we need to stop this and so it was hugely effective because they stood back and said who what are the levers that we're doing that we need to do and what maps um, can we make of those people who care and those organizations who care about the same problem same can be said you know in democratic reform there is a market map as to it's instead of one candidate calling you late at night saying give me money you know, let's figure out all the different ways that we might be able to affect the democratic process. And so we have a group, Leadership Now Project, and they did a market map, which said, here, there's 501c3s, there's 501c4s, there's independents, there's hard money, there's state level candidates. There's, and so it allowed you to understand the different levers so that instead of you just trying to back one candidate or the certain candidates your friends all know, you could say, if I want to affect voting rights or if I wanted to affect you know open disclosures or whatever I wanted to affect, I can find others who care about it myself. And I can find these great nonprofits that are working on it together. It's great other strategies that we work on um, with others. And so that market map is a helpful tool and it's called influencer map as well. Who are the other influencers that are out there that might have the effect? And then you find other partners that could be helpful that you can work with rather than telling you here all the answers. And so those mapping processes, that open awareness, this asking, this listening skills that you go about as you're trying to solve a problem rather than jumping into the answer.
0: Yeah, what an incredible philosophy and way to look at the problem in a completely different way. And I think your analogy of looking at global warming uh, was a great one. Um, I happened to see that documentary Sea Spiracy and I didn't realize how much our aquatic degradation is having on the demise of uh, coral reefs and you know the almost eradication of some of these fish life that are there uh, trying to get certain uh, molecules out of the system. And when you break down that whole ecological ecosystem, it's having huge ramifications. Um, So I I think what you're talking about here and trying to get plastics and the fishing industry to completely change the way that they're doing their accidental kills um, is a a huge issue that needs to be solved. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I did want to use this as a way to lead into this new book that you're writing. Uh, I, I understand with two colleagues. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. English Saul and Tulane Montgomery. Um, English is uh, been a great partner of mine in the community health uh, area and also written articles uh, together and uh, Tulane Montgomery is co-CEO at New Profit and uh, really specializes in proximate change and, and bringing these local views uh, so that we understand, you know, what we can actually accomplish at the local levels and build up from that. So the three of us are working, you know, on this uh, idea around, you can't fix the world alone. And that's kind of the book, we're just doing a series of articles and hopefully uh, continue to talk on on, uh, podcasts and and others about these topics and interview people who are doing that kind of collaborative change, doing those systematic change models uh, together. You know, so studies um, of, and of stories, I think that moves people. And that's what I found at New profit and others. Rather than the theory of system change and these models, let me give you, you know, a story about, you know, how Nick Rono is doing this, you know, in slavery, or how, you know, we're working on Wendy Kopp doing Teach for America called Teach for All to the world and how she's learning from the world and, and coming together. So let's interview those people and let's do stories of how they work so that people see and have confidence that, those, that that's possible. And how do we do it at that most local level so that um, when we are able to uh, create these peer-to-peer organizations and allow people to learn from each other, there's one called Work Money, which is, allows people to work and talk to each other about how do, we, how do I survive life? You know, how do I finance my own existence? How do I get health care? How do I share? Because, you know, gee, I have a low income on average. um, People and members there, you know, sitting there going, we're in need and we need to help each other. And this is, you know, a bipartisan strategy. It's 45% Republican, 25% Democrat, and the rest are independents. And they're all just sharing this knowledge with each other. And so I think that's the kind of opportunity we have, you know, in this bipartisan strategy to unify people and to use tools like a work money to build. Pe- builds people's capabilities to talk to each other rather than talk at them and allow them to build their own local change agents and models. And to be that network support unit that allows them to share that knowledge and share best practices uh, with others. And so it's finding opportunities like that, um, to my mind, that are, that are uh, highly leverageable. And when do you expect
0: that book to,
1: to come out? It'll probably be in about a year, a year plus. We're still gathering those stories and and uh, the world is, it's changing quickly, which is awesome. And so more and more people uh, like Mackenzie Sky, who did a big uh, uh, funding allocation, is are starting to fund these kinds of system change models, um, as opposed to the past. They were saying, no, I want to, I want to, I want to do, a, you know, fund, you know, an aid strategy or I want to fund you know, one particular aspect on homelessness. And you are going, there is actually tools and models that allow us all to learn how to address a lot of these problems. You need to invest in that and invest in people that can be trained around that. So they're starting to do that uh, today. And we're hearing more and more stories and we're collecting them.
0: Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to take this in a completely different direction, uh, but it's a topic I want to talk to you about. I happened to look at one of your most recent uh, LinkedIn posts and it happened to be an article about um, how the VA is treating veterans with basically mind-altering drugs for PTSD. And as we talked about uh, before the show, this is something that I'm extremely passionate about, both this and traumatic brain injuries, because the symptoms so overlap each other. Um, And I'm involved with a foundation called the Warrior Angels Foundation, which is actually working on how do you treat uh, traumatic brain injury through the use of holistic medicine, um, hormone therapy. But now their other vertical is is helping to understand how do you treat PTSD through um, psychedelic drugs. So as a person who's gone through cognitive behavior therapy, processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy. And as you're going through those things, it's extremely painful because you're having to relive, especially PET, the event again and again and again. And in my case, when you've had a myriad of events, it's it's kind of uh, difficult uh, to work with. But why is this something that uh, you've taken an interest in?
1: Yeah, and uh, it's... I, I hear you in, in the pain you've gone through in particular, and um, in, in many of our, our uh, honored uh, veterans have, have experienced those kind of pain and, and cannot understand how to, to manage it. Um, and they're now finding tools that are more effective than just talk therapy to allow people to understand you know, how to address PTSD, manic depression, Um, It it actually applies to alcoholism and addictions and and a variety of other experiences. And so understanding that there is a way to um, address those problems and then figure out ways to, um, sorry, um, connect um, these drugs, uh, ketamine, MDMA, um, LSD, so... There's a number of philanthropists, myself included, who have supported groups like MAPS doing research with MDMA, which is ecstasy, in three applications with therapists. This is not randomly doing it. This is not at a party drug level. That doesn't work. And how do you include mindfulness in that approach so you understand how to process more effectively when you use these drugs? Ketamine is already legal. MDMA is going through the FDA right now and it's finished phase three trials and is doing one final phase three trial before approval. We guess approval will be in 2023. LSD is doing, uh, being researched right now. And these are all major institutions. This is Johns Hopkins has a center, Harvard has a center, UCSF has a center. And so it's taking the science from, which was a hippie kind of culture and applying science to it and finding out how you can potentially use it. These are non-addictive strategies. These are strategies that allow what seems to happen under fMRIs is your brain. There's a place called the Default Mode Network, which goes quiet and allows you then to access other parts of your brain that you didn't want to access before or were incapable of doing that and allows you to then experience things with lower anxiety levels. So that you can walk through those experiences with a therapist, and allows your brain to reprogram itself. It's I, I, to my analogy, it's like taking the computer, rebooting it, <laughs> and allowing your brain to kind of like saying, "Oh yeah, I, I need to go in a, in a in a more normal setting." And so, as we allow that setting to take place, what do I learn from that? And they have found um, sixty to seventy percent of those with PTSD have major improvements after a three episode regime over a month period. They find that with alcoholism their current tests, not through phase three yet, but that there is um, 60 to 70% of people with alcoholism have significant diminution in uh, in alcoholism uh, uh, affected traits. Uh, The same thing with depression. Um, So these are just tools. All they are is tools. You don't continually use them. That's kind of the problem with some of the drug companies that are going, well, I can't make a pill that everybody takes once a day. No, it's like three times, four times, five times. That's it. And so you process that and you do it with a therapist and you integrate mindfulness. You integrate your own self-inquiry practice so that it stays with you. And so all of that, it's important that you have others help you through that process. But I think it is potentially revolutionary in the way we treat people who have these problems and these, um, issues. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to help support that kind of science and support of it so that eventually it'll be uh, legally available to other people.
0: Well, thank you for that great explanation. Um, and I have a lot of, uh, veterans who listen to this podcast who've reached out to me on many different topics, this being one of them. So, something I will definitely make a micro video of as well so we can get that message out. Now, I I wanted to to end with three or four fun questions for you. Um, The first one is, is there a motto or personal mantra that you have um, that you use throughout your life?
1: For me, it's, um, Minimizing suffering and enhancing joy uh, for others. It just
0: stays with me. So,
1: yes, that's it.
0: Okay. And University of Virginia calls you up and asks you to do a commencement speech. What would you give it on? It's how you
1: can partner with others to make the world you know, the better place that you want it to be.
0: Well, that would be a great topic and one that all graduates need, need to understand as that is becoming more and more important in us having a world-centric view of how to solve societal issues. Um, is there a favorite book of yours that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, I love books. Um, One that changed my life at 13 years old was Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke, And it talked about, you know, the world was in an extremist place and that people finally figured out how to take the breath and uh, do some self inquiry and and work with others to, uh, to rise up to make the world a better place. So uh, that was a good one for me.
0: Okay. And then the last question, um, and I think that book, I've read it. I, I think it had something to do with extraterrestrials yeah, it as did. well. Yeah. So um, it's been a long time since I've read it, uh, mm-hmm. but it might be one I have to go and, and uh, reread. Um, but the last question is, is kind of a segue into that. Uh, and I, I love that, to ask this, this question. I've interviewed uh, a few astronauts on the show. Uh, one of them will likely have this opportunity. She's on the ISS right now, Kayla Barron. But uh, nice. the question is, is if you were one of the astronauts who was one of the first to land on Mars and you were given the right to put any law that you could into place, what would it be?
1: I love space. My dad worked on the Apollo program and I watched all the liftoffs. So uh, it's one of those things where I'm sad I won't be able to go to Mars. But if I uh, if I did, um, It's not, you know, the law. It's going to be a practice that you have to listen before you leap. And uh, to my mind, that's something many of us still need to work on. So that's why I would spend time thinking about.
0: Well, I think that's a constant work in progress. In all honesty. Um, Well, Jeff, you gave a number of the ways along this episode, and I'll be sure to put them in the show notes. But if someone wanted to learn more about you or contact you, I know you're very discoverable through Google, but um, any recommended means?
1: Yeah, my LinkedIn site is uh, you can go there um, and always message me um, on that. And you can find out more if you want through uh, bbcollaborative.com. Uh, it's, it's the Bridge Builders site. And you can see the different people that are involved and a little bit more about me.
0: Well, great. Well, I was completely humbled to have you on the show today. And thank you so much, sir, for giving your time. Thank you, John. It was really fun. What an amazing episode that was with Jeff Walker. It was even better than I hoped it would be. And I hope you feel the same way. We talked a lot today about many different books that Jeff mentioned, including the Generosity Network, which he co-authored with Jennifer McRae. And I will put all those resources into the show notes so that You can look up those books and purchase them through the affiliate links that we have on the site. And just a reminder, any of the affiliate links that we have go directly to help supporting the show. So we don't have to ask the audience for money and it keeps the lights on here. So thank you for supporting the show and those who support us. I also wanted to talk about suicide prevention, something that Jeff brought up during this episode because in the past year, there were over 46,000 people who took their own lives, in the United States alone, and over 800,000 globally. And there's so much we can do to prevent suicide, including the use of omega-3s, which we learned about from Dr. Michael Lewis, who studied the impact of omega-3s on traumatic brain injury, and as a side found that over 80% of the victims of suicide had low omega-3 rates. So that's a great episode for you to check out if you haven't done so before. And if there is a person like Jeff that you would like to see me interview, question that you have that you would like to see me answer, or topic you would like to see us discuss, you can DM me on Instagram at Miles or hit me up on LinkedIn at JohnMiles. Now go out there and live better, be better, and impact the world. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our PassionStruck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us.